0: Welcome, everybody, to the School of Ministry. Today, we've got uh, Chip Judd with us, and uh, Chip's been a counselor for a number of years. He's also been a pastor for 25, 25-plus 25 years. It's hard to believe, 25 years. He looks so young. He's not, well, there's a few gray hairs there. Uh, I should talk. But anyway, uh, we're really glad to have him. Chip is uh, one of our favorites, and... Uh, uh, we just we love having him here, and he has some really great stuff to uh, to just impart to you. A lot of times we, you know, we talk about God and kind of the abstract and him interacting with us. Um, but Chip brings a whole other level of, uh, you know, how do we how do we take this reality about God and live out our lives in practical ways? Because um, how many of you know it doesn't always come easy? Yeah, most of us. Yeah, one. Excellent. One of us knows. doesn't always come easy. So anyway, Chip, we're glad you're here. And uh, let's just pray for you before you begin. Let's stretch your hands out. Oh. Father, I thank you for this man and the gift that he, uh, that he is uh, to us, specifically in the school, but also to the body at large. And I just pray that um, you just come right now, and that you lift him up, and that uh, this, this day, this week will just be... Uh, the smoothest thing he's ever had. Uh, that uh, the wisdom that you've given to him uh, will come out, will be imparted to us, and we'll be able to pick up pieces that help us in our lives, Lord, just as you've intended them to be. We love you, Lord. Amen.
1: I want to say something before you walked away. I was sitting over there on the couch during worship, and um, I was just thinking about how much this place has meant to me. Hmm. Um, I go lots of different places and do lots of different things, and unfortunately, everybody out there doesn't understand what happened here back in the '90s at TACF. And there's mixed reviews on some of the stuff that went on. Uh, number one, I want y'all to know that I am a steadfast fan of TACF, Catch the Fire, and everything. But I, but I would just want you to know that just coming up here regularly, like I have has just kept a, a part of my walk with God very fresh and alive. Mm-hmm. And um, I just appreciate it greatly. Thanks. I appreciate the, the, the thing in me that this place put there and then coming back so often has kept alive in me. Mm-hmm. And I just cherish it greatly. Thanks. I really do. That's great. Yeah. Bless you, man. All right. How many of you get nervous when you're meeting somebody for the first time? You know, but believe it or not, I still get a little nervous by the first morning because what matters to me is that we connect, you know, so I get like, I wonder if they're going to like me, and we'll talk more about that later. But uh, I do like to just chat a bit. What, um, how about age? I know that's, you're not supposed to admit that, but y'all are young enough, you don't care. And I'm going to let you ask me any question you want in just a minute. So think about that if you want to ask me a question, a personal question to tell you about me. So let's see, how many are 20 or under? 20 or under? Okay, I just kind of like to get a feel for who's here. How about 21 to 25? 21 to 25. All right. How about 26 to 30? 26 to 30. All right. How about 31 to 35? All right. How about over 35? Uh-oh. <laughs> Let me tell you a weird place you get in life. And you look around the room and you realize you're the oldest dude in the room. And That's that way a lot for me right now. All right, Where are you from? I already talked to these folks a little bit. So where are some of you guys from? Just call some stuff out. Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. Nebraska. England. England. <laughs> Indiana. Where else? Germany. France. Brazil. Pardon me? New York. I grew up across the lake in Buffalo. I live now down in South Carolina in Myrtle Beach. If you ever heard of a place called Myrtle Beach? I live about a half mile from the sand. I don't live at the beach. I mean on the beach, but I live at the beach and uh, just having fun. It's a fun place to travel out of Um, another question for you what just tell me some stuff you're learning what are you learning here at the school of ministry just tell me some stuff you're learning about faith cool what else what are you learning anybody man you're not learning anything where Gordon go (laughs) ungodly beliefs the father heart intimacy with god hearing god's voice prophecy, prophecy. what was that over here prophecy. prophecy cool all right well like gordon said i like to be pretty practical and let me see what you got okay um and we'll get into the notes in just a little bit but uh i'll just kind of Do you have any questions you want to ask me I'll just tell you a little bit about myself if you want. Yes, sir. Where, are you from? Where am I from? Uh, South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I travel now. I pastored. I pastored a church, planted, and pastored a church for 24 years. Turned it over to another guy and his wife um, two years ago, and now I've been traveling for about 10 years. But now I do that pretty much full time. And just go into churches and ministries and do consulting and teaching and workshops and counseling and just try to help people get healthy. So I've been pastoring for almost 30 years, and I've been a marriage and family counselor for about the same amount of time. So what I share with you this week, we're going to talk about boundaries. We actually won't start that till tomorrow, but... um, Today, we'll just kind of mess around with some stuff to get your head moving in a certain direction. Um, I, I'm married. Been, uh, next month, May the 15th, I will be married 35 years. Now, that's wonderful news, but here's what's even better. I'm talking 35 years, and I am still crazy, goo-goo-eyed in love. I, I, I sat in my room last night and had to fight the urge to cry because I just hate being away from my wife. I hate it. And I just sit there and I think, you know, it's nice to have time to myself, but I just miss my baby. I miss her real bad. And I have three kids, um, 33, 31, and 27, two girls and then a boy, only one married, and we have our first grandbaby, and that's very cool. Grandbaby's about uh, sixteen months, and she's just ridiculous it's so cool and um, you know the, the the thing I'm probably one of the proudest about is what I've already mentioned, and that is just having an amazing marriage. I mean i have uh, i don't know if you've heard the name Jack Frost, uh, but Jack Frost was one of my dear friends. I was uh, on the board of his ministry, still am actually with his wife Trisha. But Jack and another guy named Philip Miles and I always hung out together. Whenever we were both in town, we'd always get together for lunch and things like that. And Jack one time said to me that my wife and I were the only couple he knew that were true soul mates. That we really had just found that special place. And um, we really have. And we, we just drove back and forth to Atlanta over the weekend And so we had six hours in the car, both directions. And, of course, lots of time to talk and just whatever. And we just constantly are just blown away by what an amazing thing God has given us. How many of you want to have an amazing marriage someday? Who is married, by the way? Anybody here married? Nobody. Wow. So one more time, how many of you want to have an amazing marriage one day? All right. All right. The guys are kind of like, I reckon... (laughs) Let me say this while I'm thinking it Because I'll chase rabbits all week But uh, just a quick little thought Don't look for the right person Become the right person If you become the right person You'll know the right person when you find him or her So don't live your life looking for the right person Expend your energy becoming the right person and if you expend your energy becoming the right person, you're going to do a much better job of settling in with whoever it is that God wants you to settle in with. If you would open your Bible to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. My Bible is my iPad, isn't that cool? I love my little iPad Roo here. I like carrying all these books in one little place. I'm really going to tell you a personal story, but it pushes us in the direction that I kind of want us to go and uh, talk to you a bit. Uh, again, I gave you a shot. Anybody want to ask me a question about anything before I forget that? How old, are you? How old am I? Great question. I am 57 years old. And, not bad? A boy? boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it goes by quick, trust me, it goes by quick. And I'm honored to feel as good as I do and, and be involved in as much cool stuff as the Lord's allowed me to be involved in. But one time I was uh, pastoring my church, and um, this is probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And um, how many of you know what it means to have a pity party? You know what I'm talking about when I say a pity party? I was just feeling sorry for myself. And I was just kind of, I didn't like how the church was doing, I didn't like how things were moving forward, I didn't like how, uh, you know, I didn't like some things that I was doing, wasn't doing, I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. And I was walking around the sanctuary of my church praying, and I was just kind of having a pity party and telling God how unhappy I was, and why didn't he do more to help, and why wasn't the church growing, and all this kind of stuff. And I was just kind of Just feeling bad for myself. And I felt like God led me to this section of scripture. Mark 10. Is that what I said? Mark 10? Okay. Verse 46. Mark 10, verse 46. And it says this. Now they came to Jericho, period. Right? The end of a sentence. Then it says, as he went out of Jericho. Now why do I make an issue of that? Because I believe now they came to Jericho, period, ending the sentence, And then starting the next one, as he went out, I don't think he just walked through Jericho. I think he came to Jericho and had meetings. He taught. He healed. Amazing things happened. Wild, cool stuff happened. Why is that important? Because it makes this story make sense. Imagine your city being visited by Jesus and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Now he's leaving the city after turning it upside down. So now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I think you said you just learned about faith last week. Well, here's a guy Jesus has been in town. He's heard stories. You know, one of his neighbors saying my son got healed. One of his people he hangs out with saying this happened. All these amazing stories about what Jesus did while he's there. Well, this is a blind beggar. And he hears Jesus is going by. How many of you know he started to make a spectacle of himself? He started to make a lot of noise. Now, here's an interesting thought for you. When was the last time... You made a spectacle of yourself because you wanted something from God so badly. When was the last time you wanted something so badly that you didn't care if you embarrassed yourself as you went after God? So he makes this big ruckus Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you could say lots about this because I love the concept of mercy. Verse 48, then many warned him to be quiet. How many of you know religious people are always telling you to calm down? You know, take a chill. God may not really want to do that. It may not really work out the way you think it will. You know, you might want to lower your expectations a little bit. How many of you know what I'm talking about? There's always people around you that will talk you out of what you're dreaming about. Now, what's cool is, did he let it affect him? Many wanted him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more. He didn't calm down, he got rowdier. He got even rowdier. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now you gotta, you know, you can build theology in a lot of weird places, but this is an interesting place to build some theology. Verse 49. So Jesus stopped. Now, who was Jesus? Who was he in the flesh? He was God. This is God, the creator of heaven and earth, clothed in flesh. Do you realize a blind beggar stopped God in his tracks? God was on a mission, going where his next assignment was, and a blind beggar stopped him. Stopped him. Boom. How many of you know unbridled passion? Gets God's attention. Unbridled passion makes God take notice. So Jesus stops. Remember where I started this story? I'm walking around having a pity party, and what happened is how many of you have ever prayed and you can tell God's not even paying any attention? You ever ever pray a prayer and you kind of get a sense God's not even listening? So I'm walking around praying and I stop and I'm like, God, what's the deal? You're not even listening to me. And he led me to this passage. So here I am reading it. And honestly, it took me a couple of times reading it. So I get to verse 49. So Jesus stood still. God stopped and commanded him to come over. Bring that guy over here. So they called the blind man to him, saying to him, be of good cheer. Rise. He's calling you. Verse 50, throwing aside his garment. Anybody know why that's important? Anybody ever heard this before? In that day... Just like in our day, you have to have a business license to do certain things. Well, in that day, for you to be a beggar on the street, you had to be certified. What does that mean? Someone would literally make sure this guy really was blind, and he really had the right to beg. So he'd gone through the process, and he was a certified beggar. What does that got to do with the story? Well, to to show to everybody out there walking by that he was going to beg from, that he was a legal, certified, real-deal blind person. He had a certain garment he wore, a cloak he wore, that screamed to everybody, I've been through the process, I'm a certified, legally approved beggar. Well, when he got up to go to Jesus, what did he do with that? He cast it aside. Why did he cast it aside? Because deep in his heart, what did he know? I'm not going to need this anymore. I'm not going to need this certification to beg anymore. Throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to him, Now, in my opinion, this is one of the most astounding passages in the whole Bible. How many of you think God's pretty smart? How many of you think Jesus is pretty smart? How many of you think it's a little odd that the smartest person who's ever walked the earth said to a blind beggar, What do you want me to do for you? Now think about it. This blind beggar pitches a fit and gets the attention of God. Jesus in the flesh. And Jesus' statement to him is, What do you want me to do for you? So here I am. I'm having a pity party. And I'm just kind of, you know, God, things aren't working out the way I thought they would. And whatever, whatever, whatever. God tells me to read this story. And then as I'm reading it, like I said, it took me several times through it. And then I hit one point, and this, this phrase, this question exploded off the page. What do you want me to do for you? And it was like God met me eyeball to eyeball. In, in and you know how God can say a lot in like a second. And in this second of encounter with God, God said to me, Chipper, stop your whining and tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. Now, please hear this. This is probably 15 or so years. I've been walking with the Lord now. June will be 35 years. So this is 15 years or so into my walk with God. I'm not a baby Christian. And what I sent, and I'm saying that to say this. What I felt like God was saying to me was this. Chipper, when you were a baby, we did things one way. You're not a baby anymore. And here's what he said to me What do you want? And then he said, Come and get it. Come and get it. Now, how many of you catch what I mean by that? He wasn't saying, I'm just going to deliver it all up to you like I have. He was saying, I want to see something in you, some passion, some hunger, some desire in you that moves you and it pushes you through all the barriers you're now dealing with. So what happened in this story? Jesus, God in the flesh, says, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, teacher, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way, my sovereign plan has made you well. It says, "Your faith has made you well. Now what am I trying to say? I believe it was God's sovereign plan for him to be delivered or freed from his blindness, but I believe He had to play a part in it. Now here's really where I'm going this morning. I believe most people's want her is broken. Most peoples want her is broken. I'm 57 years old. And you know what's one of the things my wife and I are so grateful for? Our wanter isn't broken. We still want stuff. And when I say stuff, I don't mean just money stuff. Although, be honest with you, we don't mind that either. But I mean we want... A couple of my favorite words. I won't bother writing them. Here's, Here's words I love. What are some of the things I want in life? Intimacy? Impact? Influence, income. In that order, intimacy, impact, influence, and income. I want that. I don't just kind of, oh, gee, it'd be nice if it happens. I want it. I want it bad enough. That want pushes me, moves me. I wake up with it. I go to sleep with it. And it, and it makes me notice stuff. When you, when you admit you want something, you look at life differently. You position yourself differently. You posture yourself differently. Part of what I pray for you, part of what I want for you, part of what I, I, I say, God, please use me this week, is to shake you to make sure your wanter is healthy. Make sure, Psalm 37.4, Psalm 37.4 says this. Delight yourself in the Lord. Anybody know the rest of it? And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in God, and he'll give you what you want. Delight yourself in God, and he'll give you what you want. I heard Erwin McManus say one time, if, all your, if you're passionate about God, you can trust your passions. Another way, if God is all you want, you can have everything you want. When I was going through this moment with God, you know, I was kind of crying out to God, begging, you know, just being sorry for myself. And God said, Chipper, what do you want? Tell me what you want. And then he said an astounding thing to me. He said, Chipper, I trust your wanter. I trust your wanter. And then he said this, want away. Want away. In other words, God, the creator of heaven and earth, said to me, take the limits off of your wanter. Take the limits off of your wanter. Life conspires seemingly in an intelligent, conspiratorial fashion. It seems like life has a plan to kill your wanter. Say yes if that makes sense. It's like life, one disappointment, another disappointment. Dad this, mom that, school this, friends this, whatever. I wanted that, I didn't get it, I wanted that, I didn't get it. And it seems like life just slowly but surely suffocates, chokes our wanter. What I'm trying to say to you is you've gotta awaken your wanter. You've gotta, you've gotta figure out ways to figure out what's killing it, what's choking it, what's smothering it. And you've got to awaken your wanter it's a really 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 big deal it's a really big deal to want stuff and give yourself permission to go there let me ask you a question in y'all's opinion what percentage of people let's pick my age in their 50s what percentage of people are living the life they thought, hoped, and dreamed they would when they were 20. What percentage of people dreamed of a life at 20 that are living it at 50 or 60? What do y'all think? 5%? 1%? What? 2%. What's the highest I heard? 5? Anybody braver? 10%? How many of you agree that's kind of sad? Now, how many of you were thinking of non-Christians and not Christians? How many of you were thinking of Christians when you said that? Here's the deal, folks. You're probably not that far off. What are you going to do about that? You remember the parable of the sower? The sower sows the seed. Some fell by the roadside. Rocky soil, thorny soil, all that. We might talk about that some this week. Do you realize that if you follow that parable out by the road, rocky soil, uh, among the thorns, and then good soil, right? How many of the four permanently profited from what they heard? One out of four. One out of four. What if we just went around the room and only one out of four of you is going to get good stuff up here at the school and keep it? Getting its cool But how many of you know, keeping, it's better. That's part of what I meant to Gordon a minute ago. I've been at this for 35 years. I'm having a blast. The only part of what I do that I don't like is being away from my wife. It's the only, I love what I do. I could bore you to tears telling you all the places I've been in the last month. Atlanta several times, Charlotte, uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, Destin, Florida. Different churches, working with them. Now, everywhere I go, I can't use the language we use here. Sometimes I have to. How many of you know when you go into a different culture, you got to learn to kind of talk the way they talk? Well, I go into some church cultures that don't get what you guys are learning. And so I have to say it differently. But I love going all these places. And a lot of these places, what breaks my heart is people's wanters are broken. You know why we have this crazy imbalance between leaders and followers? Most leaders are people who want something. How many of you ever heard of Donald Miller, guy who wrote Blue Like Jazz? Anybody ever read Blue Like Jazz? It's a cool book. This guy named Donald Miller wrote this book, Blue Like Jazz. Well, then, over time, a, a, a couple of different friends told me, you need to read his other book, and it's called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in that book, they came to him and wanted to write a movie about his life. And Blue Like Jazz was kind of the memoirs of his life. So they came to him and said, we want to make a movie about Blue Like Jazz. But in the process, they realized, you know, dude, your life's kind of boring. So to make a movie of it, we're going to have to change it. And so he had this amazing amazing experience that he realized, listen now, if you're not living a life that would make a good movie you're probably not living a good life. And then he said this, one sentence, one sentence. The whole book was built around one sentence. And he said this, what makes a good story? And here's the answer. A character who wants something and overcomes obstacles to get it. Now, in my business, as they say, that'll preach. A character, how many of you are characters? As I go through the week, I'll figure out which one of you are the characters. You know what I'm talking about. But how many of you know we all are? But a good story is about a character who wants something. Say, I want something. How many of you mean it? Two of you? <laughs> Say it again. I want something. I want something. How many of you, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to right this second. Maybe in a minute. If I asked you, what would your answer be? What do you want? One time I was, I'll get back to that story. Don't let me forget. One time I was doing a funeral. A uh, dear, dear friend of mine, one of the guys who helped me start our church, and he made a missions trip to uh, Uganda or somewhere, I can't remember, it was in Africa. And he, he's, he was a little hard-headed, and his wife's given me permission to say that, by the way. Um, and he just, he, they told him to take his malaria medicine. You know what, it was the Philippines. I don't remember. But it was somewhere that they recommend you take this 10 day or 14 day, whatever it is, preventive malaria medicine. He's big old strong guy, and he just, ah. Well, he came back from wherever it was, and within days he was sick, really, really sick. Well, he's, again, a bit hard-headed. He just thinks, oh, I got the flu. The bottom line is he didn't go to treatment. And the short of it is, by the time he really realized how sick he was, it was too late. And he was 60 years old, definitely strong as a horse, way before his time, and this gentleman died. And I had to do his funeral. He was one of the rocks in my church. And I sought the Lord. And, and I guess to tell you the real part of the story, i got to tell you that he was hard to be. He was kind of a tough dude. He was big in every sense. He was physically big. He had a big voice. He had a big opinion. And he would overpower people. He was very intimidating. And so I learned a lot of things dealing with him. And actually, he was part of our leadership, and I had to kick him off the leadership because he was so brutal in the way he would try to get what he wanted. But toward the, la- toward the end of his life, the last five or so years, he had really started to get a hold of the Father's love. And he had really started to soften. And he had really started to not be quite so obnoxious in the way he went after what it was that he wanted. So I was getting ready to do his funeral, and I thought, God... I I need a word, and I need a word for the congregation, for the family. This is, I mean, it just shook us all in a big way. And God took me to 1 Timothy 4, 16. And 1 Timothy 4, 16 has this phrase in it, that your progress may be evident to all. That your progress may be evident to all. And what God dropped in my heart to say in the funeral was this. Doug, that was his name, Doug. Doug was not famous for being perfect, but he was famous for making progress. He was changing visibly before our eyes. But then the Lord sparked this thought in me. What are you famous for? How many of you know people talk about you when you're not around? Y'all figured that out. Well, how many of you know you can think about what you'd like them to be saying? What would you like to be famous for? What would you like people to say about you? Like somehow by the grace of God, 30 plus years ago, when I married my wife, I got saved a month after I got married. Think about that one in your head. I met the Lord a month after I got married. Now we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the week. There's a reason for that. I was a mess. Drugs, sex, I was a mess. I don't know when we're going to do the boys talk this week, but the boys and I will talk about some of what made me a mess. But the reality of it is, I married my wife, misbehaving right up to the wedding, and I loved my wife. And I knew I had just ruined her life. I mean, we literally, my wife was a virgin. We got married that morning and we... Celebrated our marriage that night. And as she drifted off to sleep, I stared at the ceiling in shock because all I could think about was I had just ruined this woman's life because I didn't think there was any way on earth I could be faithful. I never had been. been cheating on her the whole time. But how many of you know, thank God, fear can sometimes be a good thing? And so what it did was it made me realize I needed help from beyond myself. When on our honeymoon, I was in shock the whole time. I might as well say it now. I was so messed up, I had plans to be with another woman when I got back from my honeymoon. I already had it planned. I mean, that's how messed up I was. But I loved my wife. So we got back from our honeymoon. And these friends, I had hair down on my shoulders. I was doing drugs every day, riding a motorcycle, cussed like a sailor. My wife was a good old Southern Baptist girl. She didn't do any of the drugs with me. And I got back from our honeymoon, and two different people had witnessed to me. And the way they witnessed to me was this. Both of them didn't know each other, but they basically said the same thing. I was into Eastern religions and transcendental meditation. Mm. I was into all that weird stuff. And these two people said to me, you know what, dude, we heard there's a new church in town and it's supposed to be pretty weird. And you're really weird. You might like it. So I got back from my honeymoon and my good old Southern Baptist wife, I do that like she's short. She's the exact same height I am. And um, I said, I said, let's go to that church I heard about. She's like, Ooh, I don't want to go to, she's, I don't want to go to some weird church. So we pull up on my motorcycle and walk in there. I cuss, I cussed everywhere in front of everybody. And we sit down in church and we're walking out the door and the preacher's at the door shaking hands. And I was like, Oh man, I just want out of here. So we're walking out to the car or the motorcycle. I cussed to the preacher going out the door. I mean, I just, I was just a mess. And what got me through the service was I counted how many times he said, praise the Lord. I think it was 19 times he said, praise the Lord. But that week, all I could think about was there was something I felt in that service I'd never felt before in my life. So the bottom line is we went back. And about the third Sunday, this little rendezvous was pulling on me about to happen. And about the third Sunday, the pastor finished his message, and he was standing behind the little pulpit thing. And he closed his eyes, you know, closing prayer. And when he opened his eyes, I literally was standing right there. Motorcycle helmets, wife in tow. And I said, sir, I said, I don't know what you people have, but I've got to have it. Because I felt the pull of that awful life that I'd been living. And I loved my wife. And he took us in a little room, and we prayed that little 30-second prayer. And while we were praying that little prayer, what I was praying beside it was, God, if you're real, if you're real, could you please help me not hurt this woman? Could you please help me not hurt this woman? And here I stand before you 35 years later. Ooh, my goodness. I got crazy saved. Crazy saved. But somewhere back in there, I decided, I wouldn't have worded it like this, this is hindsight, but somewhere back there I decided I want to be famous for being a great husband. Of all the things I might be known for, I want to be a great husband so here's the deal the second most important decision you're ever gonna make in life is what what's the first most important what you do with Jesus the second most important decision you will ever make in your life the second most important decision that has more impact on the joy sorrow pain and pleasure long term of your life for generations to come Is who you decide to marry another way to say that same thing is the second most important gift God will ever give you is your spouse of course the first most important is himself the second most important gift he will ever give you is your spouse and somewhere back there in those early years I just caught in my heart I want to be a great husband. I want to be, I want to be a man who lives his life poured out in service to meeting the needs of my wife. I want to have a how many of you know the Bible says that the wife is a glory of the man? Glory just simply means a reflection of something. I I go into churches and work with pastors and their teams. When I go in, I'll be honest with you. I'm not impressed anymore by how good somebody can preach or teach. I'm not impressed anymore by how much they operate in the gifts, you know, and all these cool things happen. I'm not impressed by somebody that can wave their hand and half the church fall out in the spirit. I'm not impressed by somebody who can call people by name and birthday and address and whatever. I'm not impressed by all that. But what impresses me is if I meet you and I meet your wife or your husband And he or she glows with the glow of a well-cared-for person. Because listen to me carefully. Someday when you're married, the best reflection of your walk with God is not your ministry, your gifts, and your accomplishments. The best reflection of your walk with God is the person you live with. The people you do life with. They are the best reflection of who you really are. So when I go into places, I don't even make a real assessment of the pastor until I've met his wife, until I've met his kids, till I've met his friends. And you guys got to think about that because the best reflection of how you see yourself is the people you spend time with and the things you occupy yourself with. That's the best reflection of how you see yourself. So way back there in the middle of all this stuff I'm talking about, God started dealing with me at that level of wanter and awakening my wanter, just stretching in me that whole idea that there's something important. Like like I think this thought about that story from Mark 10. Jesus comes to this blind beggar and he says, "What do you want me to do for you?" Now, of all the things you might think of theologically, I believe this thought, God wanted to demonstrate to him and everybody else watching, which means us reading that story all these years later, God wanted you and I to realize that most, if not all, I'm not sure I'm comfortable to say all, but most, most is 51%, most, if not all, of the cool things God's gonna do in life He wants you to partner with him in accomplishing them. Most, if not all, of the amazing things God's going to do to you and through you and around you, he wants you to be an active participant. Now, your part might be that big. All this blind beggar had to do was get God's attention and then answer a question. I believe that's all he had to do. Get God's attention and answer a question. But the question was a big one: What do you have the courage to say that you want? What do you have the courage to say that you want? Like I said earlier, life chokes, suffocates, and smothers our wanter. I beg you, while you're up here, revive your wanter, stir it, shake it, Revi- you know, rejuvenate it, dust it off. Charge it up. And then think about, what is it that that messes with my wanter? All right, I asked you a minute ago, what percentage do you think people fulfill their potential, live the life they want? Let me ask you a question. Why don't more? The highest we got, I think, was 10%. So what's the deal? Talk to me i like you to talk back, by the way. I like questions. You can interrupt me in the middle of anything I'm saying. I like as close to a dialogue as we can possibly keep it this week. But what are some of the reasons people don't reach the life they want to have, live the life they want? Fear. Yes. Courage. They don't fight enough for their dreams. They, they don't have vision for what they want. They get defeated really easily. False responsibility, to take care of anything, right? False responsibility, needing to take care of family. That's a good one. Pardon me? Not believing what God said to you. Not what God said to you. Yes. <laughs> Ungodly beliefs. Shame. Hardships, hardships, struggles. Mm-hmm. Money. Money, is that what I heard? It's mm-hmm. good stuff. Good stuff. All right, let's not make this a big deal. We're not going to like spread around and do all that. But just real quickly, sitting where you are, dare to think about what would you like your life to look like when you're in your 50s? Think of three, four, five things. What would you like your life to look like in your 50s? Now, nobody's going to do that for you. Nobody out. well, it's not true. There are people that will do that for you. <laughs> but if you want to live your dreams, you've got to think about that occasionally. What do you want your life to look like in your 50s? I'm just going to give you a minute and then we'll talk about that. Then we'll get into our notes a little bit. All right, talk to me. You don't have to share anything, of course, but what are some of the things you want your life to be like when you're fifty, in your fifties? What do you think? Yes. You want to be Like a mother to troubled kids. A mother to troubled kids. Cool. Not the ones you had, right? Uh, <laughs> You want to be married yeah. to some amazing fella who's as amazing as you are? Yeah. More. Cool. I like it. He so he inspires yeah. you. I like it. What else? Pardon me? What else do you want? Pardon me? Having children. Having children. It is pretty cool. Yes. A face-to-face relationship with God. Cool, cool. Unfortunately, you'd be surprised how rare that is. Unfortunately. As I travel around the church, it's really kind of sad. But it's changing. What else do you want? Pardon me? Success. Success. That's cool. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. Anything else? Lots of laugh, laugh, Laugh? love, love, love. I got you. Lots of love. I got you. (laughs) Sorry about that. My fault. Lots of love. I agree with that. Early retirement. That's cool. Nothing wrong with that either. Anything else? Want to be an amazing giver. Give tons of stuff away. Yes, sir. Pardon me? Responsibilities. Responsibilities, gotcha. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, I had to kind of piece it together. I gotcha. Where are you from? France. France all right. Sorry. My my issue. Responsibilities, So what do you mean by that? Uh because of leadership. Of the others. hmm Yeah. So, living a life of responsibility, things over which you give leadership, direction, protection. That's cool. That's very cool. Very cool. I remember, you know, how many of you have weird little moments that are etched in your soul that you'll probably never forget? I remember uh, I was probably 17, 18 years old, and I was actually with a, a girlfriend at the time and her, like, niece or something. And we were in downtown Buffalo kind of a rough area of town. And I think we were going to a concert or something. I really don't remember where we were going. But I have this memory etched in my mind, kind of what you were talking about. And we were crossing a street in this rough area of town, and I had this this awareness that it was my responsibility to protect them. And I just had this odd, like, weird moment that I've never forgotten, that that's a role that I really want to be good at. I really want to be a person who's safe to be around and can, can shoulder some responsibility. And so uh, it's just little ways that the Lord put things like that in my soul. Head to Proverbs chapter 1 for a moment. Like I told you, today we'll just kind of bounce around a little bit. We will look at our notes, hopefully get through them, although I'm famous for not always getting through them. But, uh, and then, you know, it just depends. We'll start boundaries in the morning. That's the main thing I'm here to teach. But I like to just kind of connect with you and share from my heart a little bit the first day just to kind of get us going. Um, <clears throat> but Proverbs chapter 1, I, I, I almost hesitate to go here because in my opinion, it's possibly one of the scariest scriptures in the entire Bible. I mean, to me, it's just like, it's just like, really, God? How many believe the whole Bible was written by God? Raise your hand if you believe that. So how many believe we need to take it all pretty seriously, Right. So this, this area just kind of like, wow, God, did you really mean to say it quite that way? But we're going to read it, talk about it a little bit, and then I'm going to say a few things from it. Let me tell you what question I'm about to answer. I've been, I'm 57. I told you that. I've been at this in another month or so, 35 years uninterrupted walking with God. No breaks, detours, nothing. Just after God for 35 years. Learned how to, Mark Verkler came into my life 25-ish years ago, and I've been journaling and learning to see God and hear God and, and enjoy his intimacy and his love for all. I mean, just ridiculous. I'm so honored to have learned the stuff that I've learned. If you were riding an elevator with me and said, hey, aren't you that guy speaking? Yeah, whatever. What's the one thing, as you've watched people over 35 years pastoring and counseling, what's the one thing that is the most critical element that keeps people from growing and going where God wants them to? I'm about to answer that question. The one thing that keeps people from growing and going. I don't know how to arrest each of you like I'd like to. I mean, if I could, I'd walk to each of you and lock eyes and make you covenant with me or something. I'm not all that in a bag of chips. But this this season of your life, you're here, you paid money and time, you came out of your normal life out there, and you came here. Of all the things you can get out of this, possibly what we're about to talk about is the most important of all. Not more important than the Father's love and all that, but you'll see, hopefully, how that fits in what I'm about to say. All right, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, and we're going to use this little drawing up on the wall here. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. Wisdom is the mind, heart, plan, purpose, insight of God, Jesus, Holy Ghost, all that stuff. She, wisdom, verse 21, cries out in the chief concourses. At the opening of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. The bottom line is this wisdom, the insight of God, God's speaking into any situation you'll ever be caught in for the rest of your life. Wisdom is there talking. Wisdom is always crying out. Now, here's the problem. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Now, don't get caught up in who's a fool and who's not. The issue is what makes a fool a fool is someone who doesn't love knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. Wait a minute. You're going through life, and life shows you something about yourself that isn't working. Life shows you something about yourself that isn't working. The most foolish thing you can do is not listen and just go on, as if life didn't tell you anything. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. What does that mean? When life shows you something about yourself that isn't working and you turn to pay attention, God's spirit will be plentiful and his words will be made known to you. What does that mean? God will be there. Because I have called and you refused. Because I've called and you refused. Let me finish it. I could say what I want to say right there. Because I've called and you refused, I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded, no one paid attention. Because you disdained, rejected all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. Look at what happens here. To me, this is the craziest passage of scripture. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. Here's what I hear when I read this. Life shows you something about yourself that needs to change. You give God the hand. How many of you know what I mean? You say, you know what, God, don't feel like dealing with that right now. And then later, the very area of life that he tried to speak into begins to cause you trouble. And now all of a sudden, you want God to rescue you. Now, I believe he will, but this is trying to shake us. When, the terror, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and, distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Well, you, well you're talking about unbelievers. I wish I was. I wish I was. I pastored in one place for 24 years, one church, 24 years. What is it? Why do I say that? Because I watched people hit a point where God was saying, sir, this area of your life has got to change. Ma'am, this area of your life has got to change. And I watched people say, no, thank you. And then one year, three years, five years, 10 years later, I watched them suffer because they said no. Say yes if I'm making sense. God is going to give you opportunities while you're here to look at yourself, to learn about yourself, to grow, to change. Please, I beg you, take advantage of it. I beg you, take advantage of it. Because if not, let's say hypothetically you have some uh, ungodly beliefs, some lies that you believe about yourself. Let's say your sense of the, what a wonderful, awesome, unique creation of God you are, you just kind of don't see it that way. What if you have some really banged up self-image stuff? And you're up here in what I consider to be one of the safest places on earth. I consider this to be one of the safest places on earth. Did I say it was perfect? No. But it's one of the safest places on earth to work through that stuff. So God shows it to you, but it's a little too uncomfortable. Or you know what? It's going to take a little longer than I thought. Or I'm kind of really into feeling good. I don't really want to deal with that because I suspect temporarily I'm not going to feel as good. And so you don't take advantage of it. And then down the road a year or two or three or four, you wake up in a marriage to somebody that you probably shouldn't have married. And you married them because your self-image was so beat up. You settled for someone who didn't really fit you well. Am I talking to the right people? I beg you guys, man. I almost wrote on the board to start us off this morning. One of my favorite phrases. In fact, if you ask me, what's my ministry really about? This would be what I'd say. What's my ministry about? Do life better. You only get one. Do life better. You only get one. You only get one, man. Anybody believe in reincarnation in the room? We're going to jump on you and pray for you if you do. <laughs> How many chances you get at this? One of the things my wife and I have lived out of for years is this simple thought: We'll never be this age again. We said it at we got married at 22 or three, I can't remember. We said it at 23, 25, 30, 35, 40. And we would live out of that thought. We'll never be this age again. This stage, this, this arrangement of life, the age of our kids, our age, our health our finances will never be at this point again let's steward it you guys will never have this opportunity again you will never have life where it is right now again to be honest with you life will never be as simple as it is right here right now again never You're, you know forgive me don't mean this is you know whatever but What are we going to eat today? Your assignments, working with difficult people. I'm sure there's a few in the room that you consider difficult. In other words, life's never going to be this simple again. It gets complicated. You've got to work on this stuff. You've got to take, listen to me. God's going to show each of you one to three things while you're here. Here's a cool thought for you. Less is more. Less is more. What do I mean by that? Don't try to do a lot while you're here. Do a little, but do it thoroughly. God's going to identify one to three things while you're here in the school that he wants you to work on. One to three, not five, not 10, not 15. One to three things. That's it. you got to figure out what they are. What are those one to three things God's saying to me? while I'm here at this school. It's critical that you get that and get in there with God and figure out what that's all about. All right, back to Proverbs 1. Verse 30. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Elevator. Dude, what's the biggest thing you've seen? keep people from growing and going where God wants them to they ignore or opt out of the opportunities to grow and learn that life offers them at any point in your life life is going to offer you opportunities to see yourself more clearly what you've got to decide is are you going to be a person who ignores them Or are you going to be a person who seizes them and uses every one of them? How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Mark Batterson? Anybody ever heard of a book called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day? That's actually the title of the book. I'd recommend it. Mark Batterson's his name. It's called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. It's actually a scripture. But in the book, he says this. I love this. He says, opportunity is God's gift to you what you do with those opportunities is your gift to god opportunity is god's gift to you what you do with those opportunities is your gift to god and then he says spiritual maturity is seeing and seizing god-ordained opportunities spiritual maturity is seeing and seizing God-ordained opportunities. And then he says this cool phrase. A healthy life in God is what he calls opportunity stewardship or the stewardship of opportunity. That's just a cool way to think. Now, why did I put this Drawing on the wall. Because that is the life cycle of everything. That's the life cycle of marriage, prayer, everything. That's the life cycle of a business. That's the life cycle of a church. That's the life cycle of a a movement. That's the life cycle of everything. Because here's what happens it starts over here and It's riding a wave, and it experiences growth. Start, whether it's a business, your spiritual life, a marriage, or whatever. It starts, and you have a honeymoon. It grows. But sooner or later, you hit a crisis point. Sooner or later, you hit some moment when things aren't going as well as they were. Now, John 15 says, I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser, you're the branches. It says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he does what with? Casts it aside. Every branch that bears fruit, what does he do? Prunes it that it might bear more fruit. What does that mean? This is really, really important. In every area of your life, you'll go through a season of growth, but then you're going to hit a point of pruning where God says, I really love how you're doing, but you can do better. And I want to show you what's holding you back, and then let's deal with it. Because if you don't, if you don't seize the John 15 moments, what you do then is you experience plateau or decline. I asked you guys what percentage of people in their 50s or 60s are living on fire for God, centered in the will of God. The highest we got was 10%. Why? In my opinion, life presents you with opportunities to adjust and we don't take them. And if you don't take the opportunities to adjust, You decline or plateau. Most Christians go like this, then this, then this. What should life look like? It should look like this, then this, and then this again. Your whole life, I don't have room to go upward, your whole life should be this pattern repeated over and over and over. Because as you grow and flow in God, he's going to show you stuff about yourself. Here's what I would challenge you. At any given moment in life, you ought to be able to say, what is it that God's working on? What is it that God's working on? And it's always something he's either trying to do to you or through you. It's always something he's either trying to do to you or through you. How do you know what it is? got to figure out where the mirrors are. Am I making sense? Guess what? Moments, moments are mirrors. You hit a moment of life, and if you have the eyes to see, you see things about yourself in that moment. That you can then take to God and say, God, why did I handle that moment the way I did? You know what, God? I've done that before. Why? What is it in me that makes that particular moment go that way? Now, How many of you know God could answer that question? How many of you know God could touch that part of you? and God could bring you to a place of health and wholeness. I used to have a profound fear of disappointing, disapproving, not having the affection, and I feared rejection. I used to get in front of people like this and I'd be a basket case. Just a nervous wreck. I pastored my church for years. Listen to this thought now, ministering from my need instead of to yours. I started ministry preaching more out of my need for you to like me than I did God's need or desire to meet your needs. And I was just, I was a nut, battled with these bouts of depression and and just self-doubt all the time. And some what we're gonna talk about all this week are the things that I've learned where that stuff just doesn't happen anymore. The last thing in the world I want to do is act like anything. But I have to be honest with you. I go into churches. I work with a church that has 12,000 people in it. 8,000 people. 2,000 people. 1,200 people. I'm just thinking of different churches. 600, 700, 150, 200. I go into all kinds of settings. Listen to me. I don't care anymore. I don't care I really don't care because I've learned some stuff about getting my needs met. You know, one of these guys pastors a church of 8,000 calls me last year sometime and he said, dude, he said, I'm wrestling in, in my thought life. I'm thinking thoughts I shouldn't be thinking. I'm being tempted to look at stuff on the internet I shouldn't look at. He said, I need some help. I said, well, I'd be honored. He said, and then he said, this is what he said now. He said, you know why I called you? I said, no, sir because you're not afraid of me. Everybody else is afraid of me. And you've proven to me you're not afraid of me and you'll tell me the truth. Now, how many of you want God to be able to use you? You've got to deal with your stuff. Am I making sense? I'm trying to stop here so we can take our break. All I'm trying to say to you is this. You've got to pay attention. You've got to let life talk to you. And if you don't, You're going to miss windows of opportunity for God to mess with you. And we'll talk about it all. It'll sneak into everything we do all week long. Any quick questions before we take a break? All right. What do we take? About 15 minutes? Is that usually the deal? All right. Bless you guys. See you in a minute.